As we turn our attention now to the reading and proclamation of God's word, let us bow for a word of prayer. O Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Therefore, illumine now our hearts and our minds by the power of your spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, we might receive with joy what you have to say to us today. This prayer we make in the name of Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. Amen. The Old Testament lesson comes from the book of the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 29. I invite you now to listen for God's word to you. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And the gospel lesson from the lectionary comes from Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. You may notice a peculiarity about this text is that the Pharisees here are the good guys. They seem to warn Jesus of danger. Perhaps this is the only of the 26 references to Pharisees in Luke that are positive. Listen now once again for the word of the Lord. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Jesus said to them, Go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you, and I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The origins of the name Jerusalem are a bit complicated. 
At least in its Hebrew form, which we find throughout the Bible, it's comprised of two compound words, the second of which is much easier to decipher than the first. You may be familiar with the Hebrew word shalom, probably the most famous Hebrew word that means peace or wholeness. And this word forms the backbone of the name Jerusalem. But scholars debate the meaning of the first part of Jerusalem. It seems to mean something like to move toward or to establish. So we're left to speculate that Jerusalem means something like a foundation in completeness. Or perhaps more simply, the city of peace. The city of peace. At any rate, though its etymology is complicated, the history of Jerusalem itself is far more complicated still. And certainly it's anything but peaceful. The city of David was the capital of a unified Israel at its apex in 1000 BC under King David. But it declined steadily from there as the house and lineage of David fell into turmoil as the northern kingdom of Israel split off from the southern kingdom of Judah, where the temple and the throne were housed in Jerusalem. In 586, Jerusalem was conquered by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, whose wild name you might remember from vacation Bible school studies on the book of Daniel. The temple was destroyed. The Davidic king, the last Davidic king, was removed from the throne, and most of the population was deported into exile in Babylon. Now Jerusalem and its leaders should have seen it all coming had they listened to their prophets. Jeremiah was especially active in the years leading up to the siege of Babylon, warning its leaders that their corruption and their disregard for the poor and for God's law would ultimately lead to ruin. But the king would not listen to Jeremiah's warnings of impending doom. After the exile was underway, Jeremiah sent a letter to Jerusalem's citizens in Babylon, some of which we read a moment ago. And he said in that letter, essentially, seek the peace of your new city. The NRSV says welfare repeatedly, but the word used here is shalom, the very word that alludes back to the name of Jerusalem, the city from which those exiles came. Wherever you are, Jeremiah says, Help your city thrive. Love your new city the way you once loved Jerusalem. In other words, Jeremiah urges the exiles not to view their new city as any less important than their former home. Care about where you are, he says. He instructs them to build houses and start families and plant gardens. Love thy neighborhood, he says, in effect. Its welfare is your welfare. Its peace is your peace. And friends, cities need to be loved in this sort of way. Cities are busy, complex places in great need of the investment and concern of its leaders and its citizens. Of course, our family units are our first priority, and rightfully so. And many of us have a great deal of national pride in our country. 
But in between these two sources of identity lies the cities in which we live, the cities in which we raise families and marry and source food. And God's concern for those cities certainly remains to this day as it was in Jeremiah's day. Now, a century prior to Nebuchadnezzar's destruction of Jerusalem, Babylon was already the largest city in the world, so far as we can tell. It had 100,000 citizens in 700 BC. Located about 60 miles from modern-day Baghdad in Iraq, Babylon was for 1,500 years a center of commerce and economics, as well as culture and the arts. It was known for its large buildings, think Tower of Babel, and it was also known for its hanging gardens, which are one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Even its law code set the precedent for the emergence of all sorts of other law codes throughout ancient Mesopotamia. Now, if you thought that city was big, today's largest metropolitan area, Tokyo, has about 38 million people living in its metropolitan area. And all throughout the world, more and more people are moving to cities. A 2018 UN report forecasts that by 2050, 68% of the world's population will live in urban areas, compared to 55% today. So clearly urbanization is a key feature of modern life and will only become more so as the years go by. Now the challenges associated with life in the city have remained consistent from ancient Babylon to modern Tokyo and beyond. You see, in Jeremiah's day, the rulers in Jerusalem had repeatedly disregarded the well-being over the city they were entrusted to govern. They allowed injustice to run rampant, the poor were exploited, and the worship of false gods was tolerated. And similarly, today's cities struggle to uphold the ideals of justice and righteousness. Inequality is most evident in cities, sometimes simply by walking from one block to the next. Cities rise and fall with changes in economics and industry. And without the love and care and attention, not only of its leaders, but of all its citizens, many may be left behind in its wake the wake of its change. Now Jerusalem, as much as any city in the world, has endured seasons of rise and fall. In fact, Jerusalem has been attacked over 50 times in its history. Archaeological evidence suggests Jerusalem was founded in about 4000 BC as an early settlement grew around the Gishon Spring. The Canaanites initially inhabited Jerusalem but by the time that King David conquered it, it had become a Jebusite hub. And from the time of King David, it was, uh, it was res Jerusalem resisted many conquerors and empires until it finally fell to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, 70 years later, Persia conquered Babylon and the exiles were allowed to return to Jerusalem. And when they did, they sought the welfare of Jerusalem again. They rebuilt the city walls and rebuilt the temple there. And as empires continued to rise and fall for another half millennium, by the time of Christ, Jerusalem was still the center of Jewish religious life. And Jerusalem 
became the object of Christ's attention from the moment he stepped off the Mount of Transfiguration. Luke tells us in a chilling line that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, and from there the narrative moves steadily towards Jesus' fate in Jerusalem, the fate of the cross. All throughout the scripture text, Jerusalem is like the neck of an hourglass. It's the place towards which God's plan of history unfolds. In Jerusalem, Jesus would accomplish the salvation of the world, the long-expected fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. Jerusalem would also be the place from which God's salvation would burst forth. It would become the birthplace of the church, the city from which the saving gospel would spread, as the book of Acts says, from Jerusalem to all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. With all this poignancy around the city of Jerusalem on his heart, Jesus in our gospel text today laments over Jerusalem. He knows it's the place of the throne of his ancestor David. He knows it's the place where the temple housed the worship of the one true God. And yet Jesus also knows that Jerusalem rejects with its actions the very God that it claims to worship with its words. Jesus knows the city acts violently against its prophets, like Jeremiah, who tried to call it back to God's justice and righteousness. Jesus knows that this city will be the place of his death. You see, Jerusalem is the city of divine pathos, the city of God's faithfulness and the city of human faithlessness. And so the city evokes from Jesus a heart-wrenching lamentation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you, and I tell you, you will not see me. Until the time comes when you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jerusalem is expressed in this text both as the object of divine compassion and the object of divine judgment. This phrase, your house is left to you, means abandoned to you. Jesus says, in other words, have it your way. Have it like you want it. I won't save you from yourselves. Jesus loved the city, to be sure. But the city's constant rejection of those God sends is an indictment upon it. And now the city is about to reject God's own self in the person of Jesus Christ. Upon arriving in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, Jesus will weep over the city longing for its welfare, but knowing that such welfare is, as that text will say, hidden from its eyes. Hidden from its eyes. You know, nothing is more painful than offering love to another and having it refused. Jesus offers love to Jerusalem 
And yet he knows that he must endure the ultimate form of rejection in its midst, a public execution. Jesus' lament is the result of his relentless compassion being met with an an equally relentless human rejection. Jesus lamented and wept over Jerusalem, and how lamentable and heartbreaking it is that Jerusalem to this very day is a city divided, a city rife with violence and tension, a place that seems as far as ever for being the city of peace. Surely Jesus is still weeping, lamenting over Jerusalem. And surely Jerusalem is not the only city over which Jesus laments today. Just imagine the tears of Christ as he stands on a hill outside of Kiev or Mariupol or Kharkiv. Imagine his tears as he sees the ruins of apartments, of hospitals, of playgrounds. What sort of lamentation must Christ be uttering? Imagine the tears of Christ as he stands on a hill outside of Moscow, viewing the repression that leaves so many of its citizens completely in the dark about the realities of war. Imagine the tears as he sees the mothers of 19-year-olds who are conscripted into an army and sent off completely ill-prepared into harm's way, given no other choice between shoot or be shot. What sort of lamentation must Christ be uttering? Jerusalem was reduced to rubble under the wrath of Nebuchadnezzar, and its temple would again be reduced to rubble shortly after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus' lamentation anticipates this. The rubble to which Putin is reducing cities throughout Ukraine reminds us all that both then and now, the consequence of our human rejection of God is tragic ruin. Then and now, God longs to see a city of peace, a city established on a foundation of wholeness, a city marked by God's shalom. But then and now, humans turn away from the peace God offers. Then and now, humans turn away from God's open arms and in our violence bring destruction on ourselves. The demands of these dark days require us to focus our attention on the welfare of cities in Ukraine. And we will continue to pray and to watch for opportunities to work for peace in the midst of the tragedy unfolding there. Later in this service, we will try to address it in a tangible way. But it should also be a constant practice of our congregation in wartime and peacetime to ask ourselves what it means to seek the welfare of our own city as we strive to be faithful disciples of our Savior who weeps and laments over cities. It should be a constant practice of ours to ask ourselves, what might make Jesus lament when he looks out over Jacksonville? When we look at our neighborhoods, at our schools, at our city center, what might make Jesus weep? Who's being left behind? Who's being forgotten? And how might God be calling us to seek the peace of our city? How might God be calling us to seek the welfare of Jacksonville? 
Now, I'm still new to this city, but many of you have lived here for decades, some of you your entire lives. So surely you've seen this city ebb and flow as cities do, go through good periods and perhaps not so good periods. And now we're seeing people move here at a rapid pace from all over the country. What do you suppose it all means? What do you suppose it all means for Riverside and for the ministries of our congregation? On Friday, I led a memorial service for Danette Robinson, a member of ours who was born in 1932 in Jacksonville. And as I prepared for this service, I was trying to wrap my mind around how many changes she must have seen throughout her decades in this city, and especially from her vantage point as an African-American woman, how much change she must have seen, how much struggle she must have been a part of in this city over the years in seeking well-being and peace for all. Cities are constantly changing, right? They're constantly in flux, for better or for worse. And so it's a matter of Christian discipleship for us to be involved and engaged at all times in seeking the peace of the cities we call home, the cities in which we, do, we conduct our ministries. And so as Jacksonville continues to grow, my friends, God is calling us to seek the welfare of our city, to work for God's peace in our community and in our neighborhoods. And insofar as there are things in our city that would make Christ lament, that would cause Christ to weep, well, then we have a summons to discipleship as the body of Christ in this city. We have an opportunity to work for the wholeness, the peace that God longs to bring to fruition among us. In the book of Revelation, right at the very end of the Bible, we are graced with a beautiful image of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It's an image of a city that has finally become that which it was always meant to be, ever since those first settlers surrounded the Gishon Spring some 6,000 years ago, ever since King David established the temple in Jerusalem and God made a covenant with his house and lineage. The new Jerusalem has no walls. It's never night. And as for its name... Well, the new Jerusalem will finally be firmly established in Shalom. It will finally be that city of peace. And so my prayer today is that that vision of a new Jerusalem might inform all that we do as a congregation. As we work for the welfare of our city and bear witness to the open arms and longing embrace of Jesus Christ, towards all who call Jacksonville home. May it be so. Thanks be to God. Amen.